Welcome back. Rob Regenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon, 403-974-8255. We'll get back to more of your phone calls in a bit here. Uh, coming up tomorrow night, Memorial Park Library, a Word Fest event. Singer-songwriter Tara McLean is in town talking about her life and talking about her new book. It's a memoir called Song of the Sparrow. It is a honest, a very honest uh, and yet inspiring memoir. Talks about her upbringing, talks about uh, the abuse she suffered hands of a family member and family friend, and how all of that, uh, the good and the bad, shaped uh, the artist she became. Uh, She has released Sparrow, her 14th album, and as mentioned, uh, the memoir, to which the album is meant to be a soundtrack of sorts. It's called Song of the Sparrow. Uh, More details on tomorrow night's event at wordfest.com. I believe there are still some tickets available. But joining us uh, here this afternoon to talk about uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program the aforementioned singer-songwriter and now author, Tara McLean. Tara, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's awesome to be here. I can't wait to get to Calgary. Well, and I I think a lot of people are going to to hear from you, and it's such a a compelling story that uh, you share in this book, and and I think the album obviously dovetails a lot of that. Uh, The process of doing all of this and talking about some some pretty dark but impactful moments of your life, just first of all, your thoughts on, you know, the the process of doing this, why you felt it, it was important for you to do this. Well, the opportunity to write a memoir um, with a major publisher, it it was just such a great chance to really see what I could excavate in my life. And I've always been very open as a songwriter, uh, writing a lot about my personal life in the hopes that it would connect to people who wanted to feel less alone or needed understanding. And so the book is really just an amplified version of that. It's just sort of my my most vulnerable um, offer to date. And so hopefully it's a yeah, hopefully it makes an impact. Right. The, the, you know, the, the album's called Sparrow. The book is called Song of the Sparrow. You had that as a nickname, right? That was something given to you as, as a young child by, by your mother, right? Well, my mom, yes. she. We lived off-grid on Prince Edward Island in the 70s. And I was the firstborn child, and I sang before I spoke. So my mom told me that I was a bird, and I actually thought that I was a bird. So I would <laughs> walk around as a little child mimicking the bird sounds, and that's really how I learned to sing. And it's interesting because, you know, the, the singing's always there. It's, it's a part of your life. And, you yeah. know, in some ways, it kind of, it almost kind of saved you in some ways. It absolutely saved me. Uh, I don't know what I would have done in my life if I didn't have songwriting as my therapy and I didn't have singing as a way to express myself. And, of course, the opportunity to travel the world and sing with some of the greatest musicians in the world. I mean, it's it's just been such um, an incredible roller coaster and... I've just I've had an incredible life because of it. It's interesting. You know, early on, and it was a thought that that had occurred to you as, as a child that you you write quote I was determined to become anything but a musician. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. Because my parents were artists. My mom was an actor, and my dad was a country gospel singer. And we used to tour around as a family singing. And the money we would make was often at the churches. You know, the collection plate they pass around to us for, you know, gas and food. And, and, and even though looking back, that's quite charming. Um, it was a really, it was a hard way to grow up. Yeah. And I, I really wanted to, um, to be something stable. You know, I wanted to do something where I would get a paycheck every week and, um, and be, you know, not have that kind of, um, you know, crazy artist life, but it just kept bringing me back in and opportunities kept happening. And, 
at a certain point, you have to stop fighting it when life is is opening up like that. So I just, I didn't end up being a lawyer after all. Right. <laughs> Here I am still doing it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, and there's there's a, a quote you share that was from your grandmother, and you were still a child at this point, and, and she says to you about your singing, you could do this, this could be your ticket out of here, and it seems like, right. you know, it's a recognition of what kind of talent you have, but also, you know, that thought or that idea that you, you were living in something that maybe you did need to escape from. What kind of an impact did that, that statement have on you? That was a huge moment for me because my grandmother um, was was quite conservative and and saw the arts and music as always just a B plan or a hobby, mm-hmm. and so but she was always supportive of it. Uh, so for her to see me perform as a child one day, and then recognize that it was something I could probably do for a living was it was a huge moment, and also the fact that he, that was her also recognizing that. The circumstances we were in were were not good, and that um, you know music could possibly lift me up and above those circumstances and allow me to rise in my life. Yeah, and you know the circumstances you're in, and you know it's it's pretty raw and it's pretty honest, both the, the good and the bad. Where mm-hmm. the monsters, as you described in the in the book, and and what they did yeah. to you and your siblings, mm-hmm. but also kind of what are almost like the imperfect heroes here, right? The people you leaned on, who mm-hmm. you know had their faults. I guess you know like. Like we all do, but, you know, it's it's all there. It's all there in this book. Thank you very much. And you're so right. Yeah, we, we are all at fault. And one of the things I wanted to make sure in the book was that nobody comes across as unsympathetic, even the monsters. You know, mm-hmm. every single human being, you know, the reason we do the things we do are, you know, there, there are all kinds of reasons. But often it's just it's lack of love, lack of, you know, um, understanding. And, you know, we, we do some pretty horrible things to each other. So the book is there's a lot about forgiveness in there of ourselves and of others. Was it almost therapeutic at some level in in writing this and sharing this and going through it? Because I would imagine reliving all of it is is difficult at some level. But what's what's the process like of you know getting a lot of this off your chest? It's great. It's like taking all of my baggage, putting it into a book, closing it, and giving it to everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> Here, you know. Um, but it was it was an interesting process. It was very therapeutic, incredibly cathartic to share my deepest secrets and pains and traumas, because that, you know, sharing that also then makes the arc of all of the triumphs so much bigger and so much, you know, I wanted to really pattern the idea that it, it, we can be at the lowest point in our life. And if we can find those superpowers inside of ourselves and the love of life, then we can, we can keep coming through it and we can, we don't have to let those things define us. You know, they can refine us. We can, we can thrive as a result of those things. Yeah. And so that's really what the book is about. It's a, it's about thriving. It's yeah. It's about um, overcoming and about love. You know, we're, we're of the same generation. And as I, you know, I read your story and, and what you dealt with growing up as a child. And it's at, at some level, it's, it's a, a story about that era where, you know, a lot of things were ignored or people looked the other way or we didn't want to deal with, with certain ugly things. And and I, I, I yeah. think or I hope we're in a different world now, but, you know, surely there are still people that are going through these kinds of things. I mean, to what extent do you, you think or hope uh, that others can kind of learn from what you went through or maybe feel empowered themselves to, to deal with the situation? 
Well, that's really the biggest hope is that people will read it, especially those who have gone through similar things and feel empowered. And we've been working with uh, the sexual assault centers across Canada. And I uh, just got off the phone actually with um, the uh, the one in Calgary who they've been around for almost 30 years doing the work of supporting survivors. And uh, and it's an absolutely incredible place. And, um, and the people there have been in the trenches forever. And they're so yes, you know, there there was a time when it was definitely uh, quieter and people didn't talk about it. Um, but it, you know, it still needs. They still need funding. They still need awareness. They, you know, these centers still need support. So it just shows that we've come far, but we still have a long way to go, and there's a lot of work to do. And it's interesting. So even at an early age, it's it's obvious you've got some talent. You're competing in these 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 talent shows, and you know you're obviously resonating with people. There's a recognition of the talent, but you know life kind of gets in the way, and there's a lot that you go through as as a family and as as a person. You end up going from the East Coast all the way out to the West Coast. At what point then does does music come back into your life and and sort of become then that that career path for you? Well, I mean, music had never left me. You know, it was always there. I think one of the gifts of the hard times was that I learned that I could use music to write the songs to help me understand and, um, and you know, deal with the, the internal landscape uh, emotionally um, of having a tumultuous upbringing. And then when I was, I guess, 20, I was, um, I was singing with my friends on the top deck of a BC ferry and all of a sudden, some people came up. We were just jamming. We, yeah. you know, it was a sweet, beautiful day. And people came up to us and said, "Was that your own song?" And when I said it was, they gave me um, their card, and they were from Sony Music Publishing and Network Music Group. So I got a record deal and a publishing deal just because I was singing on the ferry that day. So from that moment on, I, I began my professional career and I was with Network for 15 years and I am still with Sony Music Publishing 28 years later. Wow. Well, and, and to come up in this era, you know, the, the mid 90s, uh, this is the time, of course, uh, of Lilith Fair and you were part of the Lilith Fair tour and, and some incredible yeah. artists. But you know, for a, a female singer-songwriter at that time, it was a really interesting period in music, wasn't it? Absolutely. It, in so many ways, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, there was so much money for supporting, you know, artists. Um, there was a lot of development money, so new artists were getting the chance to, you know, create stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, there was expense accounts and dinners and flights, you know, and first class, and it was a really wild time. But for women especially, uh, you know, we really needed to break through in terms of our presence on the airways and just trying to find equality there. And that's what Lilith Fair was all about. It was all about showing the world that women could sell tickets just as well as men could. And in fact, mm-hmm. um, you know, they broke records that summer. So Sarah made an amazing, Sarah McLaughlin made an amazing point. And um, she also raised so much money for women's shelters across uh, Canada and the U.S. And so you're still recording. We mentioned, uh, you know, the album's out as well as the book, and the album is is called Sparrows. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the the you know the industry has has changed a lot, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's still about you as as this singer songwriter. How how do you feel, first of all, that what you do has changed, or that the the industry has changed? 
the industry is completely different. I don't even really know what the industry means anymore. (laughs) So many of us are just sort of doing it on our own and trying to find our own way. Um, And, you know, putting together different kinds of teams. A lot of it is about social media. A lot of it is about streaming, Um, you know, trying to find ways that we can actually support ourselves is very difficult, especially, you know, uh, now uh, trying to get momentum after the world has shut down for so long for live performance. And uh, yeah, it is, it's a really, it's an interesting time. And, and it's also a very exciting time. And, you know, the, this album is the soundtrack for the book. So it's seven reimagined songs and three new songs. And uh, it's, yeah, it's getting, it's getting some love. And, you know, for anybody out there who's wondering, you know, even though we live in a country that is incredibly supportive um, of the arts, especially with government funding, a lot of artists aren't getting that. So anytime you can see them live, anytime you yeah. can buy a hard copy, anytime you can buy merch, you know, any anytime you can donate to their Patreon, you know, like really the you know, musicians really need support these days. And, you know, I'm I'm doing great at the moment, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm speaking on behalf of, of all of us. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. interesting. We talk about how you as a child sort of perceived or felt about entertainment or, or doing that sort of thing for a living. You're a mother yeah. now. How do I your am. kids feel about it? About the book? Well, about um, about just the whole concept of, of being an entertainer, first of all. But yeah, I mean, you know, they're going to read about them. I'm sure they, they know a lot of, of your story. But even just, you know, the idea of is this something they want to pursue? How do, how do they perceive mm. what, what it is you do? Well, I think they're very, they're very proud of me um, because they see me, you know, I was a very hands-on mom. And then when the time came and it felt right, you know, I was able to begin to resurrect my career and re-emerge post that, you know, baby time. And that's a really interesting time for a woman when you start getting your energy back and start feeling creative again, because making a family is so creative. Um, You know, homemaking is so, it's such an art, you know, so I, I didn't have the energy for music. And so for them to see me um, reclaim myself has been, I think, one of the best examples I could be as a mother to my girls. And even though I, I travel a lot and I'm away from them, I have incredible support um, at home with their dads. And I just I feel so lucky that they love watching me fly. And um yeah, I have very, very creative children. One of them in particular, my middle child, Stella, is uh, she loves songwriting and singing. So oh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. yeah, and I mean the book too. I mean you're 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 writing this book. You're you're sort of bearing your soul for the world, but you know it's a world yeah. that includes them. And I would imagine you know as a parent going through this process of writing the book, you realize you're putting down a door towards something that that they're going to read at some point. Oh, I thought about them the whole way through and I yeah. dedicate the book to them yeah. because I I wanted to give them an example um, of, of me being, you know, sharing my faults, my weaknesses, my strengths, my moments of triumph and victory in my life. I want them to see that they come from a lineage of very, very strong women. Um, my mother is one of the strongest women I know. Same with my grandmother and great grandmother. And you know, that's, that's where they come from. And so when they're going through their lives and they have challenges come up, um, they can draw on our strengths. And, and so that's really what I wanted to do was create a, a bit of a roadmap for them uh, to be able to look at and say, oh, okay, you can come from here, but you can also get to there. And, 
And I know that because my mother did it and her mother did it and her mother did it. And uh, yeah, that's really the, that's really the message to my, my girls and, and really to to anyone, to anyone who's looking for inspiration. Absolutely. Well, the book is called Song of the Sparrow. The album is called Sparrow. Uh, the event that uh, we mentioned, it's happening tomorrow night, Memorial Park Library, 7 o'clock, part of WordFest. Some more details, ticket information at wordfest.com. Uh, Tara, congrats on, on you know the, the book, the album, all the success, and uh, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We'll see you very soon. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Right, there you go. That's uh, Tara McLean, singer-songwriter, uh, now author, as mentioned in her memoir. It's called Song of the Sparrow, 7 o'clock tomorrow night, Memorial Park Library. Uh, ticket information at wordfest.com. A massive business deal is going to have big implications for the world of sports and sports entertainment. UFC has taken mixed martial arts mainstream. UFC has become an enormous global brand. WWE, formerly the WWF, already was a massive global brand, of course, in the world of professional wrestling. Well, those two companies are, well, forming a tag team of sorts. Endeavor is the company that already owns UFC. And Endeavor has emerged as the winner of the WWE sweepstakes. Now, there are other companies looking at purchasing WWE, but Endeavor will be the company to do that. So they will own both UFC and WWE, creating a $21 billion behemoth. Well, our next guest has been covering this. He's a columnist and contributor to Forbes magazine, Forbes.com. You can read his latest uh, Forbes.com on this uh, deal and some of its implications. Uh, joining us uh, for some further thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome the program, Alfred Kanua. He's a pro wrestling columnist and contributor at Forbes. Also, you can find his uh, YouTube channel, Pro Wrestling Bits. Again, Forbes.com for his latest. Alfred, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here, Rob. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, this is such a fascinating deal for so many reasons. I, I do wonder, I've often wondered over the years to what extent maybe the rise of UFC has cut into WWE's bottom line. Were, were these two companies competitors, or to what extent might they, they have been competitors? Uh, I would consider them competitors only because they are in the same space in terms of combat sports. But I think the competition was a lot more fierce years ago. I would say going back to 10 years ago, there was a pretty famous WrestleMania, WrestleMania 26 that aired the night after a UFC pay-per-view. And because of that, I think because of that, uh, WrestleMania did one of its worst buy rates uh, ever uh, in the modern era in terms of a WrestleMania that was expected to get over a million buys because Bret Hart was coming back. He was fighting Vince McMahon. You had John Cena and Batista. You had all these big main events. Um, Shawn Michaels' last match. And then uh, because UFC was held the night before, it really cut into WWE's buy rate. And at that time, I would say around the mid-2010s, there was – I would consider a competition in terms of UFC and WWE going after the same audience. Mm-hmm. But I think now, I don't think the competition is as much, but it's still there. Just because there's going to always be a crossover between fight fans and pro wrestling fans, which I'm a fan of both. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's the same kind of uh, audience. Obviously, there are some athletes who have competed in, in both worlds. So there, there's definitely some crossover here, which I guess lends itself to some, you know, some some obvious partnerships here. Right. Some, you know, some coordination here between these two companies. It's going to be interesting to see what Endeavor does with this. How do you envision uh, either or both of these these brands changing? I think 
they are going to change for the better. I think Endeavor was one of the best options WWE could have gone with. I actually, in looking when the odds were released of the two I put money on Endeavor being the one that WWE goes with. And at the time, it was because Endeavor would have been able to take WWE private. But as you mentioned, this is going to be a publicly traded deal. So that's very interesting. But if you see what Endeavor has done with UFC, which uh, they bought UFC for about $4 billion, and they've really... Uh, increase the value of that company. I believe it's at $12 billion right now. And they've done a great job when it comes to UFC's ratings, when it comes to their pay-per-view buys, marketing the UFC. Uh, the UFC has become infinitely more valuable under Endeavor. And Endeavor has recently come out and said, I believe it was Mark Shapiro, said that they're going to use the UFC playbook for WWE. And if you look at how WWE has grown in the recent couple of years, they're making more money than ever before they did this deal with Endeavor. I mean, it's a really exciting proposition from a business standpoint. And I think the only way WWE could have gotten even bigger than they were, which is the biggest they've ever been financially, is if they had a deal with an endeavor. So I think it's going to be a very exciting proposition business-wise for WWE. It's, I mean, look, it's been like 40 years, basically, you know, that, that we've had the WWE as we know it, as, the, you know, this this massive uh, professional wrestling, wrestling sports entertainment company that, that's been Vince McMahon's all along. Uh, and, you know, he's been a factor clearly in, in recent years in, in a not good way we can touch on. But first of all, why, why now? Why is this uh, company, why is WWE being sold? It's very interesting because this dates back to when Vince McMahon was still in charge. They were making all kinds of decisions to set it up for a sale. And I know they would publicly deny it, but if you read the tea leaves, anybody with common sense who could follow these business moves, where they're making all these massive roster cuts, they're making all these front office cuts, uh, WWE is being pared down. Even though they're making more money than they ever have, they were being pared down so that they can be as profitable as possible. Uh, and a lot of people speculating it was because of the sale. And I think they're doing this, uh, you know, Vince McMahon is a legacy guy. You know, I think Vince McMahon sees that he's, you know, in, in winter, he, even though he'll always say that he's going to die in the chair and whatnot, he knows that he's on borrowed time here. He's in his 70s, and he's looking at uh, maintaining the value of WWE forever. And I think he thinks that if he sells it, uh, that's why I think Disney was such a strong competitor, that if he sells it to a big brand that's able to maintain the legacy of WWE forever, I think that means a lot to, to Vince McMahon. I think there are sentimental reasons behind it. But then again, it's also a money reason. I mean, Vince yeah. McMahon and WWE shareholders are coming out uh, pretty well on this deal in terms of the $21 billion valuation for this company now. I do think that there's a financial incentive, and I do think that with Nick Khan in there, and he's one of the best deal makers around, I think that was a big influence in terms of getting this thing done. Did any of the controversy uh, around Vince McMahon in recent years did it put this deal in, in jeopardy to any extent, do you think? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think if that was the case, it would have happened already. Uh, Vince McMahon has been making moves to return to the company. He was already re reinstated as chairman. He's already been reinstated as an employee for SEC filings, and now he's made this deal. Like, what's done is done. And it is shocking, but it, it, it all speaks to the world that we live in of whether it's fake outrage, whether it's the 24-hour news cycle, things just come and go. And as bad as Vince McMahon's track record is and as ugly and horrible as these allegations are, and the hush money payment scandal is definitely something that's very disgusting, but it seems that there are still very powerful people in this world who would have no problem doing business with Vince McMahon. He has addressed it publicly by saying that he's made amends for everything he's done, which you could absolutely argue against. 
but it does not seem that Vince McMahon's baggage is going to have anything to do with uh, stopping this deal. I mean, he's come back dying his hair with a mustache. I think he just now wants to think that this is a different Vince McMahon and a completely different human being now. So it just seems like he's bulletproof. This is the story of Vince McMahon's career. He's had one scandal after another yeah. that seemed like it was going to take him down, and when he came back, he was even more powerful. He's like a supervillain. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, this isn't him selling the company and going off into the sunset. He's definitely selling his company, but he, he's not going anywhere, is he? No, no, no. He's absolutely not going anywhere. Anybody who knows the nature of Vince McMahon, that's why even when I was announced he was retired from the day that was announced. I mean, I've been writing about him on forums. I've been talking about him on my YouTube channel for us and this. About how is this man going to come back? Because Vince McMahon only knows one thing, and that's pro wrestling. And he only knows one way how to do pro wrestling, and that's being completely involved in micromanaging everything. So he's made these moves to come back. And then as recently as last night on Monday Night Raw, it's now being reported that he was firmly in control. So this man is back. It seems that he's in charge of creative. Uh, it seems that he's back as a chairman in a financial way. And, I mean, this man, until the day he leaves this earth, will be intimately involved with WWE as its overlord, no matter what happens, no matter what scandal. I mean, I think he's once again proven how bulletproof he is, and he's not going anywhere. You mentioned the WWE. It's sort of been, uh, you know, back on, on the upswing again. And, the, you know, the wrestling business has certainly been cyclical. We've seen it with the WWE and, and sort of, you know, the, the peaks they've achieved and, and some of the lows. But it's definitely been back on the rise. They've been doing well. What's interesting is a lot of observers would note that that coincides with Vince taking a step back and others in control that maybe they deserve some of the credit for, you know, getting the WWE back to, to where it once was. What's your assessment of that? I completely agree with that. I think Vince McMahon definitely deserves credit. He's the one with the final say. He is the puppet master, and so he definitely deserves the credit. But this was not a one-man show. I think the person who deserves the most credit is Nick Khan. Nick Khan was one of the biggest agents in Hollywood. He helped broker the $1 billion deal WWE did with Fox. Then WWE brought him in as a co-president, and since then, WWE has done a great job working with sponsors, having marketed matches. They had a Cinnamon Toast Crunch sponsorship at WrestleMania. They've had Mountain Dew Pitch Black matches. They've had uh, the Army of the Dead zombie matches. They've worked with the Rocks movie with Netflix. They've had one sponsorship after another in addition to some of these big TV deals. they got a billion dollar t- uh, content deal with Peacock uh, to air the WWE Network, which I can tell you right now is not worth a billion dollars. Right? They, they sold out with about 1.5 billion subscribers, I think, or, or maybe a little more than that, and Nick Khan was still able to negotiate that. So I think Nick Khan has done a great job putting this company in a position to make more money than it ever has, and people like him and WWE's team financially needs to have more credit, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, back to the point about, uh, you know, the competition between MMA and pro wrestling, you know, UFC with, you know, these larger than life characters, you sort of capture that side of wrestling, but you're delivering the real combat. You know, for anyone wondering whether, you know, pro wrestling had had its day and, and whether MMA was starting to eclipse it. Uh, look, pro wrestling's not going anywhere. The WWE's not going anywhere. And in fact, you know, in some ways it's it's bigger than it's been in a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, pro wrestling and People always talk about how you know, pro wrestling did have a boom period in terms of being mainstream. And so in terms of popularity of people watching TV, and a lot of this is because the world has changed. Like 11 million people don't watch TV together anymore. Yeah. The content is so fractured. So I don't think WWE is going to get back to those numbers in terms of Raw or SmackDown doing tens of millions of viewers per week. But I do think that especially dealing with UFC, they are going to get back into the 
18 environment, you know what I mean, uh, that it's going to be able to get in front of people and more families and more eyeballs by working with an endeavor, especially if they're using what they call the UFC playbook. I think the popularity will continue to rise, as it already has. And uh, the thing is, though, a big part of WWE's popularity was Triple H being in charge of creative and booking this bloodline storyline and doing a good job with a lot of the storylines that have brought wrestling fans back. So if the idea is that Vince McMahon is coming back to creative, the more that becomes known and the more that negatively affects the product, I think that could hinder WWE, actually. Are they going to keep these brands separate, compartmentalized, as they say? There's got to be a temptation, I suppose, you know, to throw some of the big UFC stars in a WrestleMania, you know, take a, a top WWE star, throw them in the octagon, that sort of thing. That that could be bad for both brands. I don't know. Are you, are you anticipating any of that? I do see UFC stars competing in a WWE ring. I absolutely think that's a lock. I absolutely think that when there's a big fight or a big WrestleMania, there will be cross-promotion. I do not see WWE sending the wrestlers into the octagon. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, they're all wrestlers. They're all wrestlers. You know, Brock Lesnar was a former UFC heavyweight champion. I mean, he started yeah. as a WWE guy and went to UFC. So there are guys with that legit MMA background, but I just don't that cross-promotion as much as it is, you know, hurting WWE in terms of sending the wrestlers into the octagon. I do see them making appearances, you know, maybe doing guest announcing, uh, uh, interviews during a UFC pay-per-view or appearances, but I do not see WWE competing in the octagon as part of this cross-promotion. Well, it's going to be fun to watch how this all plays out. Uh, more from you as mentioned uh, at Forbes.com. Alfred, uh, thanks so much for your time here today. Really appreciate this. Absolutely. Thank you so much. There you go. Alfred uh, Kanua, he's a, a columnist contributor at Forbes, covering the business of uh, combat sports and entertainment, and a pretty big deal uh, to cover this week with Endeavor, which already owned UFC, purchasing WWE. All right, welcome back. Rob Riggenridge with you. A lot more to get to uh, in our time remaining here. Uh, the recent federal budget, uh, it certainly makes it clear that the federal government really believes that they need to throw a lot of money, subsidies or whatever you want to call it, at developing uh, so-called clean energy. And, and it shouldn't come as a surprise. I think it's pretty clear they've really telegraphed that as, as a policy priority. Now, there, there was some money in, in this for uh, carbon capture, in, in storage, that kind of technology, but that's good to see. Uh, but yes, you know, there is a, a lot of money the government's throwing at, uh, you know, the development of clean energy. So what does that mean for Alberta? I think kind of the knee-jerk reaction is, well, this kind of goes against our interests, or this isn't good for Alberta. But I think maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Hydrogen's a good example of where there really does seem to be some overlap between what Alberta wants to see and what the feds want to see. So are there some opportunities here for Alberta to uh, really kind of maximize, you know, the impact on this or to sort of leverage some of this to our advantage? It's an interesting piece uh, in today's Calgary Herald on how this plan could boost Alberta's energy sector if Alberta plays its cards right. So what does that look like, both in terms of the strategy and then from there, you know, the potential end result? Well, joining us to talk more about this is uh, the author of the piece. Adam Sweet is the director for Western Canada, the group Clean Prosperity. Also is founding uh, VP of Policy and Bylaw for the UCP Board of Directors. Previously worked in the uh, Environment Ministry under previous uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Adam Sweet, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Rob. Great to be here. 
All right. So as we try to make sense of what it is the federal government t- intends on doing here in terms of its energy strategy, how it try it's trying to uh, incentivize the development of, of clean energy. Uh, how do you explain or understand what the strategy is, first of all? Sure. So when we take a look at the, the opportunity that's before us, it's really how do we ensure that we can continue to attract that key investment in low carbon energy to Alberta when we are faced against the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, where they are really bringing um, almost a race to the bottom in terms of taxpayer subsidies to attract investment there. How do we ensure that we can um, bring that investment to Alberta and not have to put out uh, you know, even, even more funds to, to make that happen? And we, we've taken a look at um, specifically what that costing would be for an investor choosing between setting up a hydrogen uh, production plant in Alberta versus um, in the United States. And uh, the federal budget provides a new financial instrument called a carbon contract difference that really allows us to, to bridge that gap in a way that is a very minimal cost to taxpayers. Well, and that's important because, you know, the cost of taxpayers, that's a big, big factor, but also that certainty for investors. If we want this, uh, these investment dollars to, to flood into to Canada, you know, I think what we've heard uh, is, is that there needs to be investor certainty. So how does it provide that? So what a carbon contract for difference would do is it specifically targets the carbon credit market in Alberta's tier Uh, or technology um, uh, and emissions reduction uh, program. And what it would do is essentially create a contract between the federal government and a a project proponent in the energy industry and say, we will guarantee a certain price in that carbon credit at a certain time in the future. And that creates certainty for investors to say, okay, we know that um, if we undertake a low carbon energy project, whether that is carbon capture and storage, whether that's uh, hydrogen development, we know that we will be able to sell the carbon credits that we create in, say, 2030 at a certain price. That allows that investor to uh, secure financing um, and to be confident that um, there's not going to be an overreach by Ottawa that will uh, impact their, uh, their investment. So where does Alberta, or I guess any provincial government, but this one in particular, where do we fit in here? So the tier market, uh, so the, the, the technology innovation and emissions reduction uh, program, just to, to, to clarify, um, is, a, uh, is, is a, a provincial system um, in which major emitters um, are all part of, and it's been incredibly successful. Um, we're seeing, um, it's actually, it's, it's, it kind of builds off of the fact that Alberta was actually the first jurisdiction in North America to bring forward carbon pricing for emitters back in 2007. Right. And what it does is it, and it creates a market by which um, those who are producing carbon credits um, can sell those to those who need the carbon credits so that they don't have to pay the overarching price. And when the way that Alberta fits into this is as part of the federal system on carbon pricing for industrial, uh, industrial carbon pricing, which is different than the consumer side, what this does is if we can actually set up a system or so if we can actually um, uh, clarify what the, the tier pricing, tier uh, credits are being traded at today, that would allow us to set a price that a contract could be set against um, to increase that certainty for investors. So what steps does Alberta need to take here? Well, firstly, Alberta needs to actually publish uh, what the aggregate price of the tier carbon credit uh, transactions are on a monthly basis. Um, this is, that would actually allow us to see 
what the price is trading at, and then you can sign a contract for difference tied to that price. That really is important to increasing transparency and ensuring that free market principles can take place. I mean, no different than if, if you didn't know what the average price of a stock or a bond um, or even a house was, um, how would you know how to actually negotiate or, or have clarity on what your investment is going to be? We need to have that tier carbon credit market be um, uh, be actually be published so that we can we can see what that looks like. And the second piece, though, is that we also need to push the federal government to ensure that these contracts for difference are broad based and standardized. So they're not just bespoke for certain firms that happen to uh, know how to navigate the system. We want to make sure that smaller energy firms um, across the province can add, access them and unlock the value that's created. And this is actually a really key piece that when I, when I speak with the smaller firms, I'm actually talking about traditional oil and gas firms that are looking to undertake carbon capture and storage. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is really important to ensure that our oil and gas system or our oil and gas sector in Alberta can continue to compete for generations um, on, uh, on global markets by having a decarbonization approach um, in play. So I think one of the obstacles is you know, recognizing that there is the potential for uh, an opportunity here, because I think there's a tendency to sort of view uh, this federal government and, and policy by extension with some suspicion that you know, maybe what, what Ottawa's got in mind is not necessarily in Alberta's interest. So what do you say to that? Or how do, how do we get past that suspicion? I think that's a really key question. I think it starts firstly with um, we accelerate you know, a, a, a made in Alberta um, plan that is currently called the Emissions Reduction and Energy Development Plan that really sets the vision for the world to see how Alberta can become a global diversified energy powerhouse. That importance of vision of saying, look, this is where we're looking to go, it really it silences critics who say, well, Alberta's not even at the table. Um, and it's always key for us to remember that if we're not at the table, we're likely on the menu. So <laughs> yeah. if we have that, that clear vision going forward, um, that's the first piece. The second piece is to remember that the, the diversification um, of our energy is actually about, is, is an and conversation. It's not about leaving behind our oil and gas sector. It's actually about ensuring they can continue to compete, but then also um, undertaking work in places like hydrogen or natural gas that can displace the use of coal in Asian countries, for example. And so I think that, you know, starting with that, that vision within Alberta and being confident that we can be that diversified energy powerhouse um, will be will be a critical step, not just for the conversation with Ottawa, but also for the investment attraction work that uh, that we still want to pursue. Really interesting. Well, your piece that's up is mentioned, CalgaryHerald.com, and much more at CleanProsperity.ca. Adam, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Have All a great best. day. You too. That's uh, Adam Sweet, uh, Director of Western Canada for the group Clean Prosperity. Uh, so kind of an overview of this idea of carbon contracts or carbon credits and what that means and how Alberta can really leverage that to its advantage. So we'll see how that all plays out. <laughs>